Hi, this is Kara O'Keefe, director of Fall for the Book, a literary arts nonprofit based here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. For information on our festival and other programs, visit fallforthebook.org. We're excited to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud and looking forward to talking with our guest, author Rion Emilcar Scott. Rion is the author of the short story collection, The World Doesn't Require You. His debut short story collection, Insurrections, was awarded the 2017 Penn Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction and the 2017 Hillsdale Award from the Fellowship of Southern Writers. His work has been published in journals such as the Kenyon Review, Crab Orchard Review, and The Rumpus, among others. One of his short One of his short stories was listed as a notable in Best American Stories 2018, and one of his essays was listed as a notable in Best American Essays 2015. He was raised in Silver Spring, Maryland, and earned an MFA from George Mason University, where he won the Mary Roberts Reinhardt Award, a Completion Fellowship, and an Alumni Exemplar Award. He has received fellowships from Breadloaf Writing Conference, Kimbilio, and the Colgate Writing Conference, as well as a 2019 Maryland Individual Artist Award. He he teaches creative writing at the University of Maryland. Rian, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful being here. Yeah. Um, So your new book, The World Doesn't Require You, is a short story collection. It's uh, set in Cross River, Maryland, uh, the same fictional town from your first collection. Did, Did you always know you were going to come back to that place as a setting? When I when I discovered Cross River, I I fell in love with it. I knew I would always be back, and you know it feels like I lived there, um, always. <laughs> it feels like I'm I'm far you know I'm far away from home, and sitting down and writing is 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 about coming back home. So so yeah, I'm always gonna write about Cross River. Everything I'm even if it's even if the story's not set in Cross River, it's, it will have a a connection to Cross River. So the the story behind Cross River as a as a town and as a setting. Is, it's a hopeful story. Um, Cross River is a town that was founded um, after the country's only successful slave rebellion. So there's this like very hopeful mythology behind the town. But in in the collection, there's there's kind of a lot of darkness. There's there's a lot of pride in the town's history, but the characters still face the same kind of racism we're very familiar with in the real world. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the mythology of that town's history, um, its contrast with the reality of the characters and and how the characters kind of deal with that. Yeah, I, I feel like I, you know, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't escape and run away into, into some sort of utopia. Um, first of all, that wouldn't make good fiction. But, <laughs> but, but secondly, um, you know, I, 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 a lot of, a lot of what I write, I write to face, the things that are that are really happening, and to, and to try to put them into context, and to think about um, how our our history um, is is animating our movements, and you know the in, in this day and age. So um, so yeah, the you know it it's going to touch on on the darkness uh, that that's present in in the world. Um, you know uh, you know I mean in in reality I think um, in reality we have a lot of. Uh, a lot of a lot of black communities that were that were, were completely destroyed by racism, like Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, Haiti hangs on. Uh, but uh, you know, I think it, you know, arguably the you know the fact that they that they won their their slave revolt, you know, they've been punished for historically. Actually, it's not arguably they've been punished historically for that. Uh, so I think that um, the the facing the darkness in Cross River is uh, you know that's 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 you know it's partially reality. Yeah, and and you see a lot of um, this other town that's nearby Port Yuga, which is the predominantly white town that sort of stands as a contrast to Cross River in this mm-hmm. collection. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, a lot of the stories in this uh, in this collection, you use a, a lot of different genres. A lot of them feel pretty grounded in realism, but then there's a lot of horror. Um, there's a science fiction bent to some of them, and and we see a lot of um, different elements of mythology coming in. Um, one one of the stories um, that stood out to me was were the ones narrated by. Um, by robots, where we have this really kind of dark view of the future, where technology is being used um, to return to a time of slavery and and using um, these technological creations as slaves again. Um, can you talk a little bit about using that future technology in your in your work and and well, and I guess the the idea of putting all of these different genres and genre tropes into um, a single short story collection. Yeah, I wanted to. I, I I really wanted to mash up the genres and mess around with genres that I that I like to read and, um, you know, come at it from, you know, I, I you know I, I you know, these all genres all have their own particular history, um. So I'm not you know I don't want to pretend like I'm you know reinventing it or recreating it, but using using these genres to, um, you know, to to sort of illuminate, um, you know, the ideas behind it, and I think, um, yeah, I mean. Like when when we invent these, uh, you know, robots, you know, I I think that, that there's a ethical question if they have, you know, if they have free will, you know, a, a lot of times when we invent these robots, you know, or or invent these technology, you know, to help us, to you know, to to do things that we don't want to do, um, you know, on this campus you got robots delivering food, right? <laughs> yes. You know, you know, you know those those aren't sentient robots with uh with, with emotions and and feeling, but. If they are, you know, is you know, the question is, you know, treating them as as servants is that, you know, is that is that a correct thing to do, you know, yeah. and and this is these are questions that um, I I didn't make up and I didn't I didn't come to the the science fiction has been dealing with this for as as long as science fiction most robot stories are slave stories, you know, yeah yeah um and and there is that that question of where does sentience begin I know. You, you know, you've mentioned the robots we have on Mason's campus. When they were first here, students were starting to like decorate them with faces and things like that. <laughs> and uh, and as they've the, the technology has evolved, they they're, they're able to speak to you. You know, they'll stop and say, "Please excuse me," if they're trying to get through a crowd or something. Um, well, who's to say they don't have emotions and, though? Well, yeah, and and it's it's really interesting to see the way people do talk about them like they're human and um, and, and and where that line gets crossed. Um, one of the other things I, I noticed in this collection is there's um, you you have a lot to say about the treatment of women and these questions of um, masculinity. Um, some of the images of women we see in this um, we have we have one story where the women are essentially they're sirens. Um, another story where. Um, where there's a man who's made a name for himself as an anti-rape advocate, but ends up using that position to sleep with the women who share their stories with him. Um, the novella, of course, deals with uh, a professor um, who's largely in trouble for viewing pornography on his cell phone. Um, what was it like, really, ta like tackling some of these themes, particularly at at this moment in time when when Me Too has become um, a big central feature of the culture? For the most part, most of those stories that you that you mentioned were written long before the Me Too movement oh, interesting. actually yeah. began. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I wrote the, the a rare and powerful employee 
and uh, hair at, at George Mason um, in, in Susan Shreve's class. Um, and I, I think it, it speaks to the, you know, the unfortunate durability of these issues. Um, you know, and, and I wrote that at a time when I, I, you know, embarrassingly didn't know that, that these issues, that, that women faced, um, I mean, I knew women faced, uh, you, know, har- you know, horrible issues of, you know, oppression and patriarchy and all that, but I, I didn't know the extent of it. And, you know, I'm, I'm here in my mid-20s and I'm like, wow, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand and, and know that. And, I, you know, I wrote that first story, in, you know, in a very angry way. Um, and um, so... Um, so yeah, so I so I think you know, yeah, you know, numbers was written before that, um, but you know I think that story, you know, the numbers is the one that deals with the sirens, that deals, you know, a lot with a uh, you know toxic masculinity, um, which, you know, you know, start to think back on your life and you know the, the um, how you're. Uh, you're you're you know, in fiction you're dealing in the realms of emo- you're dealing in the realm of emotion you know um and you and you know as you, as, a, as a writer at least i have as a, as a man i start thinking about the ways that um you know you we're not uh, allowed the full range of our emotion um as as men a lot of times uh and, and men and boys and the damage that causes yeah and and that of course gets to what those issues with masculinity are. It's not just the, the treatment of women, it's the expectations put on men and, and boys as well. Right. And I think the novella, I, I wrote that, you know, I, I did write that, you know, after the Me Too movement had, had, had begun and, um, and, you know, we're still, we're still thinking about the, the boundaries uh, of that and, you know, and, and, and about the movement and what it means. But I, I, I think I specifically, because because we're I'm still thinking about it and still and still trying to understand, you know everything. I I think I, I stayed away from some you know some of the some of those elements that that of, uh, um, the, some of those elements that that I feel like are are ongoing. Yeah, yeah. Um. So it's it's kind of interesting to hear that some of these stories were written way back when you were at George Mason. Yeah. Um. So th- this collection has been in the making for. Like maybe ten years, or yeah, or more even than ten more? years. Some of those stories are, are more than ten years old. A lot of them, I couldn't uh, figure out how to. I, I started them at Mason, but I couldn't figure out how to get them over the hump. You know, if, if you, you know, there's some of them are you know, the early versions, very bad versions are, are in my <laughs> thesis in the in the Fenwick Library. That's that's the where they keep them, right? It, it is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so, um, yeah, um, that story that I mentioned, rare and powerful employee, the one about the 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 uh the rape uh, advocate um that one was actually i, I wrote that and it, it it almost came out you know almost as it is um i wrote it very very quickly and um i mean, i did revision of it but it was uh, a lot of it was set um you know and um but it, I, I couldn't fit it into my first book you know i cut it out and uh, so here it is now and it fits much better into the second book than it did the first one yeah um so what what Knowing that some of these these stories have been around for a while, were there other stories that you had considered putting in the first collection that didn't make it? Do you have more stories that you're kind of waiting on the next collection for? 
I do. I, there's one story that I, I started at Mason, and then I, I, I wrote it, and I rewrote it, and I rewrote it, and I rewrote it. I changed it from, from first to third, and, and I was finally happy with it. I'm finally happy with it, and I was like, I can't wait for people to see it. I published it previously, uh, and I wasn't satisfied with the with the published versions. Uh, and I was very, you know, I was, I was excited that people were finally going to see it, but I had to cut it for space because the novella ran so long. Um, okay. So um, hopefully it'll see the see the light of day if it can fit into the next book, um, and uh, yeah. So so you know I, I think um, there are a couple. I think there may be a, a couple other stories in this book that that couldn't fit into the first book, but more so there were more so it was that the stories were not ready, and I couldn't figure out how to get them ready, and it just took time to get better as a writer. Yeah. Um. And and you're you're a teacher yourself now. I am. Is, I teach at University of Maryland. Yeah. Is is that something you talk about with your students a lot? I feel like it's always a little bit surprising for writing students to realize that maybe there are years and years and years behind a story. Yeah, I don't. I haven't brought that up in class yet, but I think maybe I should. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you you know, I I think that you you really can't discount or throw out any stories. And I have stories that I probably won't come back to, but you know, I, they're of use. <laughs> they're of use in in the fact that you know, I, I feel like I, since I write in such a way that everything's connected, it feels like when when I have I have a whole collect, story collection that that didn't um that it was accepted at a small press and then it fell through, um but it feels like those events happen. And, and you know, I was right working on a story the other day, and I and I was like, let me, uh, you know, I could pull out that mythology, uh, and I and I used the mythology um, that I invented back in 2011 for this for this new story that I'm writing right now. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. So you don't throw anything out. Everything's like potentially useful. Everything is potentially yeah. useful. Yeah. That's good. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask specifically about the world doesn't require you is there's a lot of music in this in this book um we have a character who's kind of like trying to find a particular cross river sound and and this river beat music um uh one of the titles one of the story titles too has this mashup of uh rap and spiritual song titles um and 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 there's even this story where we have you know there's a story about the temple which is um on the outskirts of cross river where these people are trying to emulate um a particular sound um were, were you thinking like consciously about making music a motif in this um or how did how did the music kind of come into play for a lot of these stories yeah just like music <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think music is a, as, as a metaphor for uh you know the first one finding finding the sound of, of cross river it's almost like a metaphor for what for what i'm you know trying to do it's you know i'm trying to find this uh uh trying to find a, a way to clearly tell these stories um and 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 so you know it's you know i you know music's a big always been a big inspiration to me it's always been something that if i'm not i i don't listen to music when i write but if there's a period in my in my life where i'm not listening to music very much and the writing doesn't turn out well you okay. know um there was a time when i started getting into podcasts a lot and i was listening to podcasts you know when i'm instead of music and i just noticed that the writing was just so fragmented and i had to go back and and start listening to music again interesting yeah and there's there's something to the idea of having like a particular kind of rhythm Mm -hmm. in your mind maybe when you're writing yeah i think that's it yeah yeah Yeah, rhythm rhythm is is incredibly important to my writing Yeah. yeah 
Um, so you don't you don't listen to music while you're writing. Did, did no, you not have at all. particular songs that you associate with this book or that that you listened to a lot while while you were writing it or revising it? <laughs> or is everything just kind of like a mishmash? I mean, there, there, there's, there's, a, there's a lot. I'm sure there's a lot that I've forgotten. Um, that you know, this, this, this uh, one of the stories that you alluded to, rolling in my sixth foe. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think of uh, it. You know, it, the title is taken from the Dr. Dre uh, chorus, um, who and he was actually um, sampling um, Parliament Funkadelic. You know, funk, Parliament Funkadelic music is you know is, is important to me. Funk music, um, you know, the Wu Tang Clan. You know, the, there are, there's several allusions to to their music within within the book. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Okay. Um, we talked a little bit about your um, your teaching, and you've been teaching for for quite a while. There are some stories in the collection that kind of like poke fun at academia a little bit. Um, we have the story. A about, bit. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an understatement, I guess. Yes. <laughs> um, we have the the story about um, the graduate student who's writing a dissertation about um, that childhood game of knocking on a door and running away, um, and of course the novella at the end of the book um, is, is almost entirely set in an academic se- uh, in an academic setting, and we have and the narrator is almost like on this mission to take down academia. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, your experience teaching and, and working in universities and, and how that informed the writing of these stories? Yeah, when I uh, when I when I left Mason, I, I went to uh, I went to Police State University, where I stayed for ten years, uh, and just where I basically learned how to teach, you know, all all, all the rudiments of it, and I was teaching composition, um, and I think a lot of a lot, you know, and uh, teaching. Academia can be a very, very frustrating place. Um, uh, a lot of it economically, in that um, it's a, a a place that that um, that purports to be very enlightened, uh, but the the level of exploitation of uh, of work in in most academic environments is uh, is off the charts. And I think that uh, if you're working as an adjunct, chances are chances are if you don't have a, if you don't have another job, that's your if that's your main way to make a living. Um, you probably don't have health care, you don't have job security, um, and, and you're making, um, you're, you're literally making, uh, your, your salary is literally, um, this, you know, you'd be better off getting a minimum wage job in many instances, and that's, the, you know, I don't mean that, and I'm not saying that as an exaggeration, um, and uh, I think, you know, obviously it's not good for society, <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, you know, I was thinking about that a lot. And I was also thinking about the, the ways in, in which we teach and, and you know, is, is, it, is, it, is it effective? You know, there's always this debate about the five-paragraph essay, which I was teaching a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, and a, a lot of times, uh, you know, I think in academia, if, you, if, you're, if they're packing, they're packing student, a whole lot of students in, in your classes and, and, they, and they're giving you four to five classes, you know, with 20 students each, you know, how, how, mu- how much are each of those students getting um, as, um, how, mu- how much of you, how much, of, how much you know, individual attention are, are those students getting? And these are, these are issues that, that academia, um, you know, it would be nice if they faced it. <laughs> <laughs> they faced it. Um, yeah, I think a, a lot of times it 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 feels to many students as a uh, as a uh, almost like a Ponzi scheme, um, and you know, 
and, and you know if you, if you look around in your class and there there are 30 other people in there um you know that, the reason for that is money <laughs> yeah yeah uh, did you do the adjuncting thing for a long time I wasn't an adjunct. Um, I, I was okay, a, yeah. a step up of an adjunct. Oh, that's good. Which yeah. I was a, which I was a, um, uh, or a lecturer. Okay. Um, nice. Which you know, but you know, it, it's better. But you know, I, I think they, you know, there there are many things in that are you know questionably exploitative, mm-hmm. exploitative. So. Yeah, and and there are obviously real consequences for the students too. Yeah. Um, I want to ask one more question about um, the book as a whole. And, and how you went about structuring a short story collection like this. Um, there's obviously Cross River as one of the things that unites the, the stories, but there are also a lot of characters that feed into each other um, and characters that repeat in different stories. And, and a lot of the different motifs and themes come into play repeatedly, and, and especially in that final novella. Um, you, you did mention that some of these stories you know, are, are are pretty old, so it sounds like you were writing them as individual stories, and some of the connections emerged maybe as you were putting the collection together, or did you have certain things you knew you wanted to appear consistently in the collection? Um, I think uh, when I when I when I initially conceived Cross River, I thought that I would be writing about this one character named Ken Sampson, um, and he's he's in my first book and he's in the second book, but he's very. You know, he's a very crucial role, but crucial but small role in the first book and a very, very, very small role in, in the second book. He minimizes himself every time I, I, uh, I write him. Um, and, I, you know, so, but you know, I, I realized at some point that, you know, Cross River is my returning character. That it is the and and I think about a lot of the a lot of the places um, a lot of the the streets and the the um, the, the neighborhoods, uh, the bridge, you know, a lot of those a lot of those are, are going to come back, and I I think if if a character returns, it's it's hard to bring back a character because when once you have a character, you know, and, and you take them through the a narrative action, you know, a, a full narrative action, their story's done, so it it really is difficult to bring back a character. Um, I think in Insurrections, there are a few characters that came back, but, um, you know, the second time they came back, they were, they were minor characters. Um, and, you know, the, the, the characters that, 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 uh, that came back in, um, well, I'll say it like this. It, it has to, it, the, the things that return have to come back in a way that's not contrived. Yeah. And, yeah. And, I, and there was a point where, you know, in, in the, the, the story of the Niganakas. In that story, um, in that story, um, there, um, you know, it's a, it takes place in, like you said, it takes place in an academic setting. And there was a, there was a certain point in the novella I was, you know, I was alluding to to the events of the story and the character and the main character. It felt so contrived. <laughs> it felt so contrived. I had to, you know, so I, I I got rid of that section. There was no reason for the character to return. It had no plot value. It had no, no character value. Only had it, the only value it had was, oh wow, look what we, look look at this cool thing I'm doing. So I, I got rid of that. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, well, thank you so much for spending some time talking with us today. Congratulations on all the success of the collection. It's been really exciting to see. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, and you can find more episodes of Mason Out Loud on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks for listening. Read on.